0: Morning. Morning. Ready to dive into this morning's message? Hope so. Super. A couple weeks ago, I started uh, thinking and preparing about what I might be sharing this morning. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I thought to myself, you know, this is going to be my first Sunday as the new associate pastor at ABC getting to share. And so I want a sermon that's going to be you know, good. I want one that's, you know, not going to overdo it or underdo it, but it's going to be just right. Uh, You know, something that's exciting and meaningful, uh, but doesn't rock the boat too much. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, maybe I'll focus on uh, church unity in the midst of change. You know, there's a nice, easy topic to deal with, right? No. Um, but, uh, But as I was praying and sorting through different topics and Uh, Reading scripture, I felt the Lord lead me to speak on uh, Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. I focus on the relationship of husbands and wives. And as I read that passage, I thought to myself, you know, Lord, this isn't very exciting. You know, I at least, I grew up in the church, and so I've heard this passage umpteen times. And uh, so as I'm reading it, I'm thinking this is kind of plain, kind of vanilla, Uh, or as my my youngest son Judah would so eloquently put it, it's blah, dad. (laughs) And so as I uh, dug into it, I I was thinking that and wondering what was going to be happening, but I had sensed the Lord's leading to that passage, and so that's where I dove in. And a couple days later, as I was driving into work, I was thumbing through the presets on my car radio, and I suddenly heard the voice of Adrian Rogers. Now, if you're under the age of 35 in here, you have no clue who in the world Adrian Rogers is. And that's okay. Um, But I grew up with a dad who was a pastor. And so we listened to hours and hours and hours of sermons on road trips. And uh, so my wife says that my secret superpower is being able to recognize any famous preacher on the radio in a heartbeat. And so anyways, I hear Adrian Rogers' voice, and so I pause, and as I'm listening to him, I realize that he's sharing uh, a sermon from about 20 to 30 years ago on Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And in Titus chapter 2, it has a similar theme uh, of wives submitting to their husbands that's also found in Ephesians chapter 5. And as I'm listening to him share, I notice that my gut is starting to feel more and more tense, and I'm starting to wonder, how is he going to navigate this kind of sticky issue here? Because I at least grew up in the 90s and the 2000s, and that day and time, if you said, and I'm pretty sure it still is today, if you say that wives should submit to your husbands, that is a very hot topic. I mean, if you want to offend somebody at the dinner table, just go ahead and throw out that little bombshell, you know. You'll, you'll clear the th- room at Thanksgiving. Um, and so as I'm feeling this growing tension about how people might feel offended at what Adrian Rogers is saying, I had to be honest with myself that in the back of my mind, another thought was running. As I'm driving in my car listening to this, I'm thinking, what if somebody knew that I was listening to this? What would they think of me? And so as I'm listening to that and feeling this growing tension, I had to pause. And I had to remind myself, John, you're all alone. (laughs) You're the only one in the car listening to this. Why in the world are you feeling all of this tension? Why are you feeling this, this fear and this worry? But see, you and I, we've been conditioned to be able to feel tension about creating a cultural offense, right? We feel that tension. And that's when the other shoe dropped for me, and I realized that in two weeks, I would be standing in Adrian Rogers' shoes, sharing from a passage of Scripture that evokes deep cultural tensions. And I would potentially have people walking out of my message or turning off my podcast over it. And as I was there, I began to realize that reading a familiar passage of scripture silently in my head was going to be a far cry from hearing it publicly explained. And my vanilla message began to turn into a red hot chili pepper. And when you begin to add in the tension over recent court decisions or some of the depressing statistics that we hear from time to time on marriage in general, or we just look at the imperfections in our own marriages, we can begin to feel absolutely paralyzed at the thought of even sharing about a Christian view of marriage. Can't we? Don't we? At the fear and the tension of hurting somebody or offending somebody or feeling hypocritical when it comes to talking about relationships. And so this morning friends, I want to invite all of us whether you know we're here or we're listening to this later on a podcast or whether we're a Christian or we're somebody who wouldn't really consider themselves very religious, but somebody invited you here this morning, and you're hearing me share about my tension and hesitancy, and you're starting to now feel that same tension and hesitancy. I want to invite you and I to have the freedom to feel that tension. I want to invite us to to lean into it, to feel that conflict and to know that this is a safe place where we give people time to sort out the complexities of life. And that you're welcome to join me in stepping in to that tension in swallowing that chili pepper. And that, yes, just by listening doesn't mean that you agree. That's why I want us to join in this morning. But for many of us, I would say even for most of us, beyond that, beyond that freedom, we have a desperate need and some desperate confusions in our marriages alone. This should be enough to compel us beyond our tensions, beyond our fear, to consider that maybe, just maybe, God is offering us some genuine help and there's no strings attached. That's where I think we find ourselves this morning. But I think it's absolutely fascinating, as I look at the text, to see that the people that the Apostle Paul uh, was writing to 2,000 years ago were facing the exact same cultural tensions that we are today, except for at that day and time, the pendulum had swung to the other end of the spectrum. Broadly speaking, the Apostle Paul was speaking to a very, very patriarchal society where women were treated similarly to property, and he was dealing with a culture that had all kinds of relationships from concubines to polygamy to men marrying men to religious prostitution, and it was all normal and common in the ancient world. And so what Paul writes here would have been extremely upsetting, and I believe even more so upsetting than today to the cultural norm of that time. And he's specifically writing to a group of Christians that have stepped out of that culture. And he has an overarching principle he's sharing on Christians and relationships. And then he goes into three examples of our daily relationships, one of which is marriage. And he, I think, in the passage, answers for us two major questions that we are constantly walking around with these days. And they're very practical. The first question is, what does a good relationship look like? What does a good relationship look like? And the second is, what's my part in creating it? What's my part in creating it? And so, this morning, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Open up our Bibles or apps to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes into some examples of what that could look like. He says, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. And then another one, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a final example, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what he's saying here is that a spirit-filled person is marked then by these things. One of which is submission, a kind of humility that puts others first out of reverence or, or holy respect to Christ. And then he goes into what that looks like in a marriage relationship. And gives the first example of the three. And he says in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now we have pause here for a moment. Because sadly, this verse has oftentimes been misconstrued and misinterpreted. What he's saying here is not a case for chauvinism. It's not. Guys, he's not saying here that women should submit to men. No, what he says is that wives should submit to their own husbands, not just to any man. It's specific in terms of this covenant relationship right here. This is what it's calling for. This is what submitting to Christ looks like. And he goes on, he says, for husbands, uh, or I'm sorry, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now we need to make our second note here. When he says the word everything here, Paul is talking about the godly lifestyle that he's just finished discussing in all these previous verses here. Talking about rejecting a former way of life that was sinful and embracing a new way of life, and so that everything here is everything that would be good and pleasing, that would be done out of reverence to Christ. Anything that would be wrong would not be done out of reverence to Christ. And so to be abundantly clear, a wife should not submit to her husband in doing something wrong. That wouldn't be out of reverence to Christ. Clear? Moving on. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, having, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ, as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, now in contrast to this great mystery, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, the scriptures stand as controversial and as complicated and as beautiful as ever. Tim and Kathy Keller point out in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. Modern Western readers immediately focus on and often bristle at the word submit. Because for us, it touches on the controversial issue of gender roles. But to start arguing about that is a mistake that will be fatal to any true grasp of Paul's introductory point. He is declaring that everything he is about to say about marriage assumes that the parties are being filled with God's spirit. Only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. This is a different paradigm, friends. The kind of marriage being discussed here is only possible if you've surrendered to Jesus Christ and you are continuing to rely on the Holy Spirit. On our own, it is impossible for this kind of marriage to exist. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what our attentions so desperately need is for us to be humbled, to recognize the utter relief that Jesus is offering us here. The relief of this is astounding. That you and I cannot simply make a great marriage. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and pull this thing off. For one, it always takes two to make a great marriage. And for a second thing, we won't even have one unless we are fully leaning on the Holy Spirit for help. That is what Paul is pointing out here. And once we've been humbled by God, to be able to say that our way of doing things won't cut it, it's only then that we are able to see what God is offering us. And the Christian model of marriage then, if you will, is that with God's help, our relationships should reflect his work. Our relationships should reflect his work. This is the overarching principle that the Apostle Paul is putting forward here. That for husbands, how Jesus relates to us is to be similar to how we relate to our spouse. A husband who is humbling himself to love and to sacrificially care for the needs of his wife is attractive. In God's eyes, at least right for wives how we are relating to Jesus should be similar to how we relate to our husbands a wife who is humbling herself to respect and follow her husband's husband's uh, leading is beautiful in the eyes of God in the eyes of everyone else this is profound that's what Paul calls this profound that reflects Jesus' work with the church utter submission through loving Utter submission through respecting. The world's way of marriage says, here are my expectations, please meet them, right? Here are my needs, please meet them. It's a, it's a me-first marriage, a needs-based kind of marriage. And it doesn't take the supernatural work of God to pull off. What it oftentimes ends up looking like is two vacuum cleaners facing each other, Sometimes they're able to stick together, and sometimes one simply devours the other. But if we want a truly Christian version, our relationships should reflect Jesus' work. And well, that takes God's help, plain and simple. But isn't that the kind of marriage that we want? Isn't that the kind of marriage that we want? If it is, we need to ask our first question. What does a good relationship look like? What does a good relationship look like? Well, if we look at the text here, we can see that a good relationship reflects the relationship of Christ and the church. A good relationship reflects the relationship of Christ and the church. I don't know about you, but the first time I heard that, I thought to myself, that has gotta be one of the least romantic things I have ever heard. I mean, Really, Paul? (laughs) My relationship with my wife is to reflect the relationship of Jesus and the church? Uh, For some of us, the picture of the church is cold and loveless, (laughs) caring little about what God wants, right? Thankfully, G.K. Chesterton offers us some help when he said, the vision is always solid and reliable. The vision is always a fact. It is the reality that is often a fraud. Christ's vision of the church and his relationship with her is the vision for our marriages. Paul is talking about here the vision for the church. That's why Paul can confidently say, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And he can go on to say and see the church as submitting to Christ in everything. And then finally wrap it up and say that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. A vision of a beautiful, imperfect relationship. What does a good relationship look like? Well, it looks like that. It looks like the church as the bride of Christ perfectly submitting and respecting Jesus. And Jesus unconditionally and sacrificially loving the church. It's two, offering themselves up completely to become one. What he describes in verse 32 is profound. But what does it mean for our relationships to reflect Jesus' work with the church? Well, it's certainly not meant to be a one-for-one one example. But what it is meant, what it does mean for us, is at least two things. That for husbands, we are to be seen seeing ourselves through the role of Jesus. No pressure, right? That you are called to unconditionally love your wife through sacrificially caring for her. That's what the verses of 25 to 28 are all about and what would have been absolutely rocking to the Ephesians that Paul was writing to. And I think it still moves us today. So let me ask you, husbands, are you sacrificially caring for your wife? Is your love moving in the direction of being unconditional for her? That's the call, and I don't know about you, but I found that challenging this weekend as I studied it, and for wives, the role is seen through the perfect church. Again, impossible without the Holy Spirit, but it means that you are called to unconditionally submit in respecting your husband's leadership in anything that is good and godly, and in real life, this challenge shows up everywhere. I mean, it's, it can be brutal, right? Uh, when uh, my wife and I were first married about six years ago, uh, Pastor Brian actually did the ceremony. And he did this beautiful ceremony. He doesn't think that grooms are listening, you know, to his messages. Um, but I remember, I mean, he talked about me leading my wife, me providing for my wife. And I got distracted on the third point, but it was really good. And... Um, And we got, we said our vows, and it was a beautiful October day, and we went off on our honeymoon, and and I remember it was the day that we got back from our honeymoon uh, from Door County and moved out to Washington, it was the day we got there that the first reality check (laughs) came in, and it came in literally in the form of checks. Uh, We had uh, received some different gifts from our wedding, and uh, we went down to the Bank of America ATM to deposit them. And back in the day, that was when the ATMs were just starting to take checks. And so we'd take them one at a time, you know, and then process it. And then, you know, you do it all over again. Well, while we were there depositing these checks, out of nowhere, this huge line forms behind us. I mean, there's suddenly like five people behind us. And my wife, who hates to inconvenience people, is suddenly feeling the pressure of we're inconveniencing all these people. And so she turns to me and she goes, hey, let's go. We're going to, you know... be." you know, there's a huge line here, let's go. And I'm thinking to myself, and all of you guys in the room are also thinking to yourself, no, 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 no. I'm not gonna come down here and do this all over again. Like, let's finish this right now. And so I said, no, let's, let's just finish this. And in her mind, suddenly the bells went off, and she thought, if you loved me, you would not be making me feel this pressure. <laughs> and she's looking at me. <laughs> And in my mind, the bells are going off, and I'm thinking to myself, if you respected me, we would finish this, and I wouldn't have to come back down here again. And in a moment, she suddenly turned around and walked back to the car. I don't think she realized it, but she was holding all the checks. (laughs) So that meant we were done. And I didn't, of course, put together that. I didn't think that she knew that until much later on. But I'm going, oh. So this is how it's going to be, huh? (laughs) So I wrap up the ATM, and as I turn, I start walking back towards our Jeep. I'm thinking to myself, John, (laughs) this is a pivotal moment in your marriage. (laughs) Remember what Brian said, you know. (laughs) I knew I had some options. I I was going to either lay down the law, or I was going to try to lay down the law, (laughs) or I was going to ignore it. I was going to pretend as if I could ignore it, uh, or I could do the thing that, of course, I didn't want to do, which was to lovingly bring it up, so that we could take our cue from Scripture, figure it out. Tough moment, right? And they happen all the time, don't they? It happens all. Even if we get over our tension and humble ourselves and rely on the Holy Spirit and see Paul's example of a good relationship and understand that we're called to love and respect our wives, it can still feel as if there's an ocean between us and the ex- experiencing that example. So we have to ask our, our last question this morning and maybe find some help here. The last question of, what's my part in creating it? Practically speaking, if, if you and I are filled with the Spirit of God, we have to answer that question still. What's my first step? As I'm walking back to the Jeep, what am I supposed to be doing? What does me helping to create a relationship that reflects Jesus' work look like? Well, I think the answer from the text is that my part is to go first unconditionally. Go first. Unconditionally, no matter what. I believe that, friends, down to my socks. Look back at the text with me. Verse 33. There's a summary piece here that simply reads, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. No, there are no conditions being placed on this. Out of reverence to Christ, do it. If the Holy Spirit of God has come to live in your life, then you have all the help you need to love and respect and submit in Jesus' name to one another. Even if your spouse isn't a Christian, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2 lays that out, that in everything that is good, our obedience is a reflection of Jesus' work. Jesus chose to love and submit in everything to God the Father. And he wasn't waiting on humanity to get their act together. He wasn't waiting on our choices. He didn't look at humanity and say, when you stop sinning, I'll love you. When you get your act together, I'll start caring for you. No. He went first. And in our relationship, it should reflect his work as we go First, and then stand back and watch as we continue to obey the fruit that follows. Now certainly, this doesn't always work out. I know for myself in the past year, I've worked with two men who had faltered in their marriages and then were attempting to make these changes and were truly changing, and yet they did not have a happy ending in spite of the changes that they were making. There is certainly life after divorce, as many in our room can testify. And this is a safe place for you, if that's your situation. We even offer something called divorce care because we really believe in it and we care deeply about that. But marriages can turn around. In the book Love and Respect, uh, Dr. Emerson Egrich which I would highly recommend this book, it's been a wonderful book, Uh, He gives an example of a letter that a wife wrote to him uh, about this very same thing where her husband made the choice to go first. She writes, we are still together today for the past few months. He has been doing exactly what you talked about at your conference concerning his love regardless of her respect. He loved me when I was not lovable at all and held on to our marriage and his family when there was absolutely nothing to hold on to. In the past year, I asked him to please leave the house. I wanted to be alone. I wanted space. I just, wanted, I just felt like I didn't love him anymore. Reluctantly, he left for a couple of weeks. I knew that my life and the life of the girls would be drastically changed with a divorce. I thought about the shared visitation and how we'd have to sell our home, which we had recently finished remodeling. But I didn't, but I didn't care. I just wanted out. Meanwhile, he prayed, studied marriage books and tapes, and made a decision to love me no matter what. The girls were starting to miss him not being around, so we decided he would return home until further notice. Well, he would hold my hand every night and pray for me and for our marriage as I stared up at the ceiling, anxiously waiting for him to finish. He would leave little notes or a little flower on the bathroom mirror or in the car. So many little things he would do to show me that he loved me and wasn't going to let this marriage end easily. It just irritated me. I thought, can't he understand I don't love him, that I don't want to be with him anymore? Why is he trying so hard? I didn't feel that high in love feeling for him anymore. My needs weren't being met, so I wanted out of me first marriage. I was emotionally going through something that neither of us really understood, but he stayed there and loved me through it. I'll spare you the extra details, but I eventually broke. No woman in her right mind could let go of that much love and commitment. Now I'm very much in love with my husband. I've learned that love is not a feeling, it's a choice, a commitment. He didn't be, we didn't become a statistic because my husband chose to love me no matter what my reaction toward him would be. It was really humbling to look back and see how, the loving, how loving and patient he was with me. Trust me, it wasn't easy. And how he, only through the strength of Christ, saved our marriage. I can't say that we're completely out of the tunnel yet, but we're certainly very close. If you make the decision to go first in relying on the Holy Spirit to show love and respect, you are going to reflect the work of Jesus Christ in your relationship. And in spite of how your spouse may or may not respond, you won't regret it. Why? Because you will be reflecting Christ, and you'll be doing it out of obedience to him, and he is always worth it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the example of your son Jesus. That through his good news of what he did for us at the cross, of his life and death, his resurrection from the grave we find our example for life. That in all of this, this is where we stand in the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus. In our marriages, have the opportunity to reflect that. And Jesus says, we feel wholly inadequate for the task at hand. Would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit knowing that the outcome rests beyond us, that it's outside of our control, but the obedience to you is what you have called on us to do. And we lay everything else aside. We lay down every other burden, and we ask for your help to obey you in Jesus' name.